As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 134 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. What's Hi, up? Adam. Hi. I always do that. It's okay. What's going on? Not much. It's a very rainy Friday here. Yeah. That we're recording this. Man, I, I was actually laughing um, this morning because I get to the office ungodly early because my schedule, then I get to leave early, which is great. You also um, probably missed all the traffic that was happening. So I did. I missed all the traffic, but the part that we'll get away from local weather talk that I was laughing at is, you know, there's that, um, I don't know if it was from like an old farmer's almanac or something, but it always says like red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky at morn, sailors take warn, whatever it is. Yeah. The sky was super red this morning. <laughs> oh, no. And I thought about that. And then in the 20 minutes it took me to drive to work, it started getting darker and darker. And I was like, oh my God, there's some truth behind that. <laughs> Yeah. It's just been random that the sky was red this morning, but I don't know. It rained it, like the heavens opened up this morning. <laughs> they did. <Good> God. <laughs> so yeah, it was very very This wet. is one of those things where I feel like we should have rain days to like just stay home and read. I know. I should tweet it out this morning as us. I was like it's one of those days where it, it, had I have woke up when it was raining, I would have been like I'm not going. I know. Day. I had a hard time. Yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. Um, so what do we what do we do today? This is a very fun and exciting uh, interview we did with Jonathan Saffron Four, who I'm sure most people are very familiar with his name. Um, he is the author of several books. Um, Everything is illuminated, and we talked a lot about his latest one. Here I am. Mm-hmm. He was in town um, for a author event. He actually did it at a local temple. Yes. Um, so we got we were invited to come out and interview him there at the temple, which was. Um, it's a gorgeous facility. It's such a beautiful <laughs> space. Yeah, and I think it was a, f- a fitting um, location. Yeah, for the interview. And a few things that made me. That first off, when we got there, I was having crazy deja vu. Deja vu. Can't say words today. Uh, my father's side of my family is Jewish, and I had completely forgotten I had went to like a cousin's son's bar mitzvah there, but it had recently been. Um, Re what's the word? Renovated. Renovated. <laughs> Renovated. It recently <laughs> been renovated, and so it's gorgeous. But I was having that weird feeling of like I have been here before. So that was one thing that made me laugh. And then there is this group. There was this group of um, like older people that were there as a part of a community <laughs> oh, that's program right. that the syn- that the synagogue does. And they called them, I believe they called them their senior seniors. They did. They and were their senior seniors. So it's all of the people that belong to this temple. 
that were like 80, 80, 80 and over. I think that was what she told which, us. <laughs> first off, the the area we were in is a highly uh, populated Jewish community here in the, in the Cleveland area. And there were a lot of them, which yes. I, first off, I want to aspire to be their age. And there was a lot of them in this group. But just going to throw this out there. If I reach the age of 80 or 85 or however it is, I don't want anyone calling me a senior senior. I forgot about the senior seniors. I couldn't stop laughing because like, <laughs> I would have been, if I was uh, one of them, I'd have been like, hey, maybe we just call us a community group. I don't know. I feel like if you've gotten to 85, you're like, whatever. I know. It just made me, ch- I, like, I couldn't stop laughing at that word there. I was like, oh my uh, God, they're so wonderful. And, um, and Jonathan, getting back to why we were there. I remember because he was doing a reading yes. of part of his book when he was going to speak to these people and he found out who was there. And he like he has certain readings in his book that he decides to, based on the crowd, which is really smart. That is very smart. Um, but yeah, I, senior seniors. And yeah. Then chuckle. Um, we talked a lot about his books, uh, obviously. We always do that. But something that you mentioned before we started recording that I remembered, um, he is very well known for being a Jewish author and so a lot of people kind of call him like the definitive voice and writing about the, the Jewish experience. And, and he was very open and he was like, I don't consider my books to be Jewish. That's It's just my life. Yeah, I think that was an interesting way of how he framed that because mm-hmm. he's not it's not like he sets out to write about being Jewish or about the Jewish community or Judaism. That's just he writes about what he knows right. and what he knows happens to be Jewish. And, yeah. But it's not. Like, he, that's not really, like, what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. But just because of his experiences in his life, that's what it ends up being. Yeah, he also, uh, he's he is one of those people who, his answers are very thoughtful and intelligent. And... I felt so dumb. Right? <laughs> he's, sleeping. Uh. he's so intelligent and he's so eloquent and just very unassuming. And, um, yes, he was very well-spoken. Yeah. We had some. There was some interesting stuff about him. Um, one, he has a fun connection to people who work here at Overdrive that we meant we talk about, and he also talks about the fact that he's not on social media. Correct. We'll get. He'll get into that. Um, but yeah, I, I really love this conversation. Yeah, it was, it was a, a good one. Fun. And the space room is beautiful, and like sound quality wise, perfect. I know when we go on the road, it's always kind of a crapshoot, and we tell people in advance like, "Hey, this was at a conference." No, this was a, a beautiful open space and it sounds great so yeah if people want to get a hold of us how can they do that they can find us on twitter at pro book nerds and they can email us directly at professional book nerds at overdrive.com yes they can um last week was our big books of july so if you want to send us some comments on that feel free uh if you want to let us know what you thought about this interview feel free Uh, we haven't asked in a while if you want to go on itunes and give us a five-star rating and maybe leave a little comment about your thoughts on the show that helps other people find us um yeah that all the housekeeping i think so nice okay cool i hope you guys all enjoy this interview with jonathan i hope you all enjoyed this interview with jonathan safran for on the professional podcast Hi, everyone. This is Adam and Jill again from Team Overdrive. And today we're joined by Jonathan Safranfor, who is a New York Times bestselling author of the massively popular Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, both of which became motion pictures, as well as his nonfiction bestseller, Eating Animals, 
His most recent novel, Here I Am, came out in 2016 and is now available to borrow, purchase, and place holds on. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Can you start our listeners off by giving them a brief introduction to Here I Am? Sure. Uh, It is a book that takes place in Washington, D.C., almost entirely in D.C., almost entirely in the contemporary moment. And we follow a family, the Block family, um, and especially or particularly the husband and wife, Jacob and Julia, who are in their early 40s. Um, And we just watch them confront two crises um, over the course of about six weeks. One of them is a domestic crisis, which is a cell phone that reveals an affair, some kind of affair. We're not exactly sure what kind. And then an earthquake in the Middle East, which precipitates a war that becomes so extreme that um, the Prime Minister of Israel asks all Jews around the world to come to Israel to fight. Mm. So basically we are with, in, in a very domestic setting with, in many ways, quite a normal family. I mean, the, maybe a, the kids are kind of hyper-articulate. The <laughs> grandfather, Irv, is kind of bombastic and every, everything's a little bit elevated, but mm-hmm. they are, it's a socially realistic natural setting and we um, stay with them through these extreme events I have to tell you first off we have a few random like six degrees of separation connections uh, with you in this book that we'll get into a little bit later but for like one my I have a grandpa which I thought was very uh, unique to just point that stuck out to me but um, you know it's been a decade since your novel before this came out since your last novel came out before this so what made you want to tell this story, and I suppose at, at this time? I don't know if it's, just, if it's right to say that something made me want to tell it, because mm-hmm. that implies that I knew in advance of telling it what it was, which really isn't true. <laughs> That's right. fair. You know, I came just to know the story, or I came... The, the story did not exist before I told it, mm-hmm. let me put it that way. It didn't exist in my head. Mm-hmm. It didn't exist in my heart characters were not with me in advance of writing them. There's no voice that I discovered and then wanted to share. I had no point to make. I really approached the blank page or the empty screen um, day after day after day, not knowing exactly what I was doing and also not overly concerned with the outcome, just wanting to try to be faithful to my own thoughts and feelings. And that's one of the dangers when you write is you get so stuck on an idea of what a good (laughs) book would be or what the book you've told other people you're gonna write is, that you ask your thoughts and feelings to conform to that Mm -hmm. rather than asking the book to take the shape or allowing the book to take the shape of your thoughts and feelings. So um, it was 10 years since I finished my last book, but I didn't spend 10 years writing this. I spent a lot of the time just having kids and being a person in the world doing <laughs> right. not a lot of anything. Sure. Uh, I spent a lot of the time writing a nonfiction book, Eating Animals. And I spent a good amount of time, I could describe it in two ways. One is working on a bunch of different fiction projects, none of which came to fruition. Another way to describe it is I spent a lot of time really not wanting to write, but mm-hmm. forcing myself to because I'm a professional writer and that's what professional writers do. They write. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is I just didn't feel like it. Yeah. I didn't want to and it took me quite a long time to find a piece of writing not to conceive of but to, through writing to find a 
piece of writing that I just wanted to write mm-hmm. that excited me. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, given that there was so much time between you know your last novel and this one, were you at all hesitant to put it out there in the world? No, definitely not. I was uh, just the opposite. You know, I was more eager. Um, as time passed, I became more aware of the passage of time. Okay. You know, two years, no big deal. Three years, <laughs> right. it's been three years, four years, but five years. At a certain point, it starts to become yeah. a thing. Like, yeah, and, more aware of it. And I was aware of it. And it and it uh, created a kind of anxiety, which was not productive and also really not necessary. But I'm a human, so there it was. And as I was reaching the end of this, I was very grateful not only to be finishing this particular book but just to be finishing a book Mm -hmm. to be able to have that identity in the world again as a as a writer yeah um you touched on something that i want to circle back on just really quickly we love talking about the craft of writing with people and it the stories you tell are very they're so rich and there's so much to them and so when you said we've had other authors tell us this before but their books aren't quite as say in depth as yours you said that you know you started each day not really knowing where you were going to go. Is that how you wrote your other novels as well, or did you tend to map those out a little bit further? No, I've never mapped anything out. But what I do is I sort of retrospectively map things. Mm-hmm. So there's a real difference between the first part of the process, which is the generative, creative, putting pages together part, and then editing. Mm-hmm. And so in advance of the creative part, I don't have any kind of plan. But once I have a draft or something resembling a draft or just a couple hundred pages of material then I look at it and I start to try to make sense of what it is that I have and to have it be a novel Mm -hmm. rather than Mm -hmm. just a kind of whatever mess of expression Mm -hmm. Um, and then so that does feel to me more like mapping Mm -hmm. but in a way mapping is a good analogy like if you're going to go to an undiscovered previously undiscovered let's say island, you know, in the Pacific. The notion of mapping it out before you've been there is ludicrous. Yeah. How could you? You don't know what it is. I love that. I do too. You know, when you write a book, it is spending time in a place and turning over rocks and following paths. And um, then after a certain amount of time, you can say, I have enough familiarity with this now to start to create a structure and, and then make use of that structure. So with this book and with my other books, I wrote several hundred pages. Actually, in the cases of all of my books, I wrote many hundreds of pages more than ended up in the books. Mm-hmm. You know, twice as many pages as ended up in the books. Um, and I was able to look at it and say, okay, what is it that I have here? How can I make it something that is shareable, that is useful, that's efficient in the ways I want it to be, that's inefficient in the ways I want it to be? And um, just try to find the symmetries and rhymes and structures that will be it'll make it a good book mm-hmm. so there's something I, I i'm fascinated by is the the family you've built you've, you've built in here i am it feels so much like um the jewish side of my family my father's side of, of our family is jewish and i mean that in a positive way um like the jokes and the commentary that are in here it some people may see them as strange or even a little bit dark from time to time but they feel so much like things i have heard my uncles saying to each other like it Passover Seder my entire life so it struck me as something that I was able to relate to but was there ever any concern with a book like this that is very focused on Jewish heritage and Jewish family and and Jewish background was there ever 
a worry in your mind about alienating people who might not be able to relate to that type of story or just that type of admittedly very unique familiar you know familial setting no not at all um for two reasons one i really wasn't aware of how jewish it was as i was writing sure. it and in fact when i gave the book to my first readers to friends basically a few family members one of the responses was wow this is really jewish <laughs> and i thought what this no <laughs> um now of course it's sort of undeniable when i look at it but i was just blind to it when i was writing mm-hmm. because because I was blind to everything yeah. when I was writing. I was really writing from a position of discovery, not from knowing. Um, I didn't intend for it to be a Jewish book. I don't think of it as being about Judaism culturally or religiously or intellectually. I think of it as being about these big themes which are universal, like home. Mm-hmm. You know, Where do we find home? What is home to us? How do we have an identity that is can be faceted without being fractured. You know, how can we feel like ourselves in our professions, in our familial units, in relationships when alone? So, you know, if I... Nobody ever says to me, ever, like, hey, you wrote this book in English. What an interesting choice. Were you worried that that was going to alienate non-English speaking? Why did you decide to write? I wrote it in English because that's the language I speak, right. and it's my best way to communicate the things that I care about. That's how I felt about the Jewish content. Like, I wrote it in Jewish. It's mm-hmm. just, it happens to be what I know. Yeah. It is um, not a language in the sense that English is a language, but it is a, a cultural language. And it's my cultural language. So, I trusted, insofar as I cared at all, but I, I trusted that readers would respond to what the book is about, mm-hmm. not the language that brought them to that message. And that really has been the case. I you know the strongest reactions to the book the most like um, sort of warm response that I've gotten has actually been outside of America mm-hmm. in places where there are not big Jewish populations um, there are all kinds of reasons why that might be the case and maybe that they're curious about Jewish people but mm-hmm. I hope I hope that that's not it I hope it's that something in the book is striking something in them you know, mm-hmm. and that, that is operating on the level of theme. So kind of going along with the idea of the, the personalities and the family in the story, the children in this book feel like very real, solidified children. Um, they're snarky and witty and smart. And do these personalities like come from your own experiences? Are your own kids in it in any way? Like, you know, where's the sort of line blurred between fact and fiction if there is one with regards to the kids it's just all fiction it's really pure fiction my kids were were, they're 8 and 11 now but when I was writing those parts they were quite a bit younger and they weren't also these kids are not you know I think there's a real difference between something in fiction being believable or feeling real that's true and being that's true accurate in some kind of journalistic sense yeah so there aren't really kids like this in the world they are a little too smart a little too snarky (laughs) a little too ironic but that doesn't matter to me because my I'm not a journalist I'm not trying to create an accurate in that sense depiction (laughs) of a person a kid or an adult you know the goal is to create an experience for a reader that is moving that is persuasive and sometimes to do that, you have to 
is tell a certain kind of lie to get at a different kind of mm-hmm. truth. Uh, along those same lines with the children, there's a there's a scene in here where, where Sam has his first Torah commentary, and it struck me thinking about it just because a we're we're in a, a temple, and before we started recording, I actually told my co-host Jill over here. I, I had a nephew that had this bar mitzvah here and I was having these weird flashbacks because they, re- they renovated it. This is not good for a podcast. No one can see this beautiful space we're in. Yeah. But nonetheless, I was thinking about it because I remember him telling me, like, he was frustrated, kind of like how Sam is in here, where like, he didn't understand half the things he was reciting and he, was, he felt like he was just doing this for his family some of the time. So just because he related so much to this character, I was curious if for you, if, if those were some of the same things you experienced in your bar mitzvah and just again if, if that was more of you creating a, a situation for people to have an experience in the book or if that was personal in any way as well well speaking of life imitating art did you happen to catch the name of the rabbi who runs this place is going to introduce me as well rabbi was it brock block block yeah, yeah which is also the name of the family in this book. right yeah. yeah um uh coincidence i'm yeah. sure did i did i have that experience yes i think a lot of it wasn't exactly that experience but it's almost a right of it's almost part of the rite of passage among American Jews is to say, Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And the answer very often is because I did it, you know, which is not an answer at all. Right. But as Max, the younger the middle brother, says in his bar mitzvah speech, which is a flash forward in the book, it takes place years after the main action of the book, he says that, you know, wrestling with something, being frustrated by it, being angry about it isn't necessarily symptomatic of anything bad you know being indifferent is bad so you know the the word israel the name israel means wrestles with god and so wrestling itself is sort of woven into it is the name of the jewish people it's woven into the identity um so you know you hear a lot of older jews jews of the previous generation who are very concerned about the assimilation of American Jews or just a kind of end of institutional Judaism in America, they get worried when they hear kids, you know, bucking against what's being asked of them. But it's actually nothing to worry about. The the worry, if you are to care about like sustaining Judaism in America, is just that people don't care at all. Right. They won't care enough to even protest. Mm-hmm. We'll just show up and say like, all right, let's get this over with. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's so true in really any aspect of, of life. Like, and you'll see this a lot of times when, you know, people will be whether it's political commentary or, or anything. People will become incredibly popular, and there'll be so many people that's like, I don't get why so and so is so popular. I hate him so much. And I'm just like, well, he's popular because so many people like you love to hate him. Yeah, it's either you know, it's wonderful to be loved. It's okay to be hated. It's just that middle ground where you said where it's like, I'm indifferent. That's where you're where you kind of just completely fall off. Well, we have that with our president right yes. now. I mean, I can't tell you how many t- tables I've sat around with, how many smart liberals who spend the entire dinner talking about, you know, making fun of the way Trump shakes hands mm-hmm. or making fun of the way that Trump tweets or making fun of the way he mispronounces words. Or I say, you know, who's having the last laugh here? Like, we're spending a whole dinner talking about him. Mm-hmm. And that is no small part of why he won yeah yeah so switching gears slightly to um your previous novel everything is illuminated adam sort of alluded earlier in the podcast that we have this very bizarre six degrees 
um, connection. We don't personally, yeah. but um, that's why it's even it's probably like seven or eight degrees to be honest. You had interviewed um, a woman named Betty Gold for it, who is actually the aunt of our CEO Steve Potash. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, which was just a very fun fact to learn <laughs> um, leading yeah. up to this for us. So, given that you know, again, we're sitting where we are. Um, can you sort of talk to us a little bit about the research process for that particular book? So the main research for the book was that I went to the Ukraine mm-hmm. and on a journey that was sort of resembled the one that the character in the book makes, but not really. Mm-hmm. I had a translator, a guide, but it wasn't at, it wasn't at all like the Alex character in the book. Um, I saw some things, but I didn't see anything like what they saw together in the book. Um, and in a way, it was the failure of my real life trip that inspired the novel mm-hmm. because it was such a disappointing and frustrating and dispiriting emptiness that it wanted to be responded to and filled if I had found the woman who saved my grandfather there really was such a person I think I would have it would have been a kind of satisfying experience or complete I don't know that I would have written about it and if I had it would have been very hard to write fiction about it mm-hmm. I might have written nonfiction, but as it happened there was just nothing and it wasn't a kind of interesting or moving nothing. It was just a dispiriting nothing, like a, a hole. Mm-hmm. And I felt inclined to try to fill it. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that you've written, uh, you wrote a, a piece recently for The Guardian that was this very kind of like short, just simple but beautiful statements and beliefs and things like that. Something you wrote in there that really stuck with me is you stated that your goal is never to be wildly successful or, or lucky or anything along those lines. You wanted to, what you wanted to accomplish was just to be proud of the work that you do. And I love your work, obviously, lots of people do. But would you think? Would you say that you've accomplished that being proud of the work that you've created with the novels you've written to date? Well, I keep changing, so my sense of pride keeps changing. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, as time passes, actually, it's easier to be to be proud of things in the past. Um, the closer they are to me, the harder it is to be proud. But, I mean, it does beg the question, what, what is even meant by that? Mm-hmm. What do you mean to be proud of it? And what I mean is not to be proud of the quality of it, because writing doesn't really have a quality, mm-hmm. exactly. Not in anything resembling an objective sense, you know my book might work for you and not work for you or it might work for you today but mm-hmm. not tomorrow and not work for you today but work for you tomorrow and it's just so esoteric and particular and subjective and it's the same with me mm-hmm. like my own relationship to my writing but when I feel proud it's proud of my effort and by effort I don't mean sitting at the computer every day or writing 250 words every day I mean investing myself as fully as I can in something that I believe is important Mm -hmm. and writing is one way that I can do that and there are others you know it's politically or in a family or in friendship I've been thinking a lot about that recently like how to be more proud of the way that I'm a friend Mm -hmm. Um, I turned 40 not that long ago just a couple months ago and it really got me thinking about pride in all these different contexts and you know what it is to feel pride specifically in my life and how to 
work harder to get there. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, you know, as you sort of change, does your relationship with your writing and your previous books change as you sort of get older and, and sort of reflect back a little bit? It does. I don't go back and read my books. Okay. So I've never reread a book that I've written. I will, not because I'm resisting it and there's no principle, I just. I, mean, I just don't. You know? Yeah. yeah there's... Right. Um, one day, maybe. Maybe I'll read them with my kids or something. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I have to, you know, if I do a reading or something, I'll read 10 sure. pages. But mm-hmm. So my relationship is based entirely on my memory of it, not at all on what it actually is. So that itself is a little bit That's interesting. confusing. Yeah. Um, something else that I've, I've seen you discuss, and it's pretty well known, you know, you don't really use social media, you're not on the internet all that much. And... At the first, admittedly, because we work for a tech company, when I first saw it, I was like, That's, what a novel concept, not to put a poor play on words there, but the more I thought about it, as a writer, I imagine that's probably a much healthier lifestyle, just because you know, you don't feel the need to instantly react to something in 140 characters and you know, be right in with you know, whatever hashtag is trending right now about whoever is taking a stand and, and et cetera, et cetera. So just from your mindset, is it just that it's a healthier way of kind of living and, and thinking and being able to focus on a, a much larger, you know, more thought out story you want to tell as opposed to feeling like you need to shoot off, you know, every single thought out into the world? You know, not really. I guess I don't even know if it was so deliberate. I just kind of never got interested in it. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a feeling it would probably probably not be great for me. Mm-hmm. But that's not the reason I don't do it. I don't do it just because I never got into it. Yeah. I don't know why. I just never did. It's kind of missed the bus. <laughs> and at this point, you're like, man, what's the point? Of- yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, some people love racquetball. They play racquetball. I never really got into it. I kind of played ping pong, but I've never played racquetball. Maybe if I did, I would like it. Maybe I'd spend too much time. I don't know, but am I going to get into it at this point? Probably not. Right. Yeah. Um, social media, you know, I... I already look at screens too much mm-hmm. and I already communicate like by email and text too much. I don't definitely don't want to open the door for yeah. more of it. Interesting. That's fair. Yeah. Um, is there anything you're working on right now? Working a lot right now, but Still not necessarily of. anything that will amount to anything. Mm-hmm. But um, two novels that I always have a couple fiction projects going at the same time just because I know. I'll lose interest in mm-hmm. some of them, or, right. they, or they won't pan out. Yeah. And then also a nonfiction book, kind of about technology, actually. Yeah. Um, something that wasn't planning on asking you, but the more I thought about it, we're sitting with you. It's not every day we get to sit with someone like you, so I want to ask, um, what are you most excited about in like the world of literature right now? Like, is there an author that you're that you have recently been reading, or, or a book, or just a, a trend? Is it just something that you're really excited about in the world of kind of books in general well I tend to read mostly nonfiction mm-hmm. and poetry um, probably because I'm a novelist and I, I don't know if it's like a defense mechanism <laughs> or what but I that, that's how yeah. I seem to read and I really love reading books that this is to say, this is gonna sound so cliched and trite, but <laughs> I love books that like make me think about the world differently, mm-hmm. make me think about myself differently, and poetry is incredibly good at that. 
and so is a certain kind of nonfiction that I'm drawn to. Yeah. Um, it was what I tried to do with eating animals, you know, that to just for myself, and then when I published it for others, but to address something that felt really important, and I wanted to know about, and I wanted to respond to in a way that felt more in keeping with how I think of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I like reading things that make me want to change my life. Yeah. That's how I would put it. Interesting. Uh, so towards the end of our podcast, we do every time what we call the Nerd Nine, just because we like alliteration. Uh, it's just nine, we call them rapid fire questions. They never end up being that way. We should probably send these people ahead of time. <laughs> They're not rapid fire yeah. because people think about them yeah, too much. They, they think I about, promise you I won't. They, they think about them and then we comment on them if we really love your right. answers. And, uh, I, I promise you I'll give you the... Perfect. Psychologist there you go. Perfect. Office Perfect. All right. And I'm going to try to do this off the top of my head. So if I forget one, Joe, you're going to have to call me out. I'll close my eyes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so right. the first one is, what's the last book that you finished? <laughs> Someone asked me in the car and I can't remember the name of it. It's, it was a book about technology. I want to say it's like the robots we are or something like that. Mm-hmm. If I had a little time, I could find it. See, the I know. Book, this... the, the book I read before that, though, I, uh, was called... Um, Basquiat's Widow, I think it was. Perfect. And it was a memoir by Jean-Michel Basquiat's girlfriend. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite place to read? Bed. Anybody who says something different is lying. Absolutely. My problem is I always fall asleep. Or doesn't have a bed. I always fall asleep in bed when I'm reading. <laughs> I don't know, I read on the couch. Me too, but that's not a problem. That's yeah, that's true. true. I feel like I could read way more. See, this is why they're never rapid fire, because then I like <laughs> think I self-process into myself. Anyway, uh, do you have anything you would consider a guilty pleasure? And I just tell everyone, like, mine is, my ins- my Instagram account, speaking of social media, is all the pictures of my dogs in the world. Like, far too many. So is there anything that you have that... That, I, that is, that's shareable? Right yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can determine what's shareable. A guilty pleasure, not a guilty habit, right? No, a guilty pleasure. Yeah. A guilty pleasure. Uh, I watch enormous amounts of sports on TV. Yeah. And I only realized this recently when I feel like someone called me out on it. <laughs> and I, it, you know, there, there are activities in life where until you're called out or until you measure it for yourself, You'd have no idea. Like if mm-hmm. someone said to you, how much time a day do you think you spend um, looking at email? Mm-hmm. You might say, like, I don't know, 20 minutes. And then you see on a PC, oh my God, it's it was obs- 23 hours. It's upsetting. Yes. So yes. I've watched pretty much every playoff game that was on TV in these last NBA. Uh, we can't we'll really talk, talk about that. I'll tell, you what, <laughs> I'll tell you what. This is obviously going to come out after. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't rule Cleveland out. I hope you're right. I just would not rule it out. It would be a wonderful story and it's a mistake to... <laughs> Uh, assume that LeBron no, we know that we're Clevelanders. Uh, we know that's that. Okay. But you just made us even bigger fans in your idea. That's amazing. Um, are they you... won me over this year. I didn't like him in the past. Really? Yeah, I especially didn't like Kyrie Irving. Who yeah. I really like now. He's, okay. Yeah. Well, well, we like this version of you. Then. <laughs> that's um, are you a cat person or a dog person? Do you really have to ask that question? If we have to ask everyone, because I'm a dog person and she is a cat person, I'm a dog we just person. need to see. That's the reason. Okay. Yeah. It's our eternal battle. Um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Well, I'm drinking coffee as we yeah. do this. <laughs> well, no one else can But I actually like both. I would say I'm muddy by by drinkle. That's a word now. <laughs> I'm steal that. Um, what's one place in the world you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Oh God, there's so many. So, so many. I'd love to go to China. Uh, I'd love to go to Portugal. Mm-hmm. 
I would love to go to, to um, I've only been to Morocco and Africa. I'd love to see the rest of Africa. Mm-hmm. I'd love to go to Jordan. I'd love to go to Turkey. Go on and on. Those are good. Um, I think I'm forgetting a few. Um, top of my head. See, this is why I should have written down. Uh, what, who is one person you'd like to have dinner with, alive or dead, if you could pick? Well, I wouldn't want to eat with a dead person. That's <laughs> <laughs> time machine. People like to have lots of fun with that one, yeah. Uh, I'd love to eat with Obama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then along those lines, do you have a favorite food that you would eat with Obama? Um, oh, I love truffles. Perfect. The, the mushroom, not chocolate. Right. right Although, right. to be honest, chocolate. They're both much. pretty good. Yeah. They're both pretty good. That's so, a, that was a, I would that have was truffles a... on truffles. I'm not even so sure that would be Ooh. bad. Like truffle oil on top of a truffle, maybe? Or would yeah. you shave them? So... Shave them, I think, but yeah. I'm also just hungry now, I think. So. Truffles on popcorn. That, I'm not a fan of that. One yeah. of my very favorite things to eat. Yeah. That was a nice segue. That was the question. Thank you. That's you because forgot. I forgot one, so I feel like I always have done it that way. So <laughs> yeah. that was all nine of those. I think we have one more question we for do. you. We um, do. You know, with a book as as dense and thematic as Here I Am, it's easy for people to kind of want to put their own interpretation of what it is and what it's supposed to be about. Um, what do you as the author sort of hope readers take away from Here I Am? Well, I like the first thing you said. I want them to have their own okay. interpretations and experiences of it. I think a book that has any kind of intended meaning, that is one intended meaning, isn't a book I'd be interested in writing. And it's not really a book I can imagine being all too interested in reading. I like, whether it's books or plays or dance or paintings, works of art that are really open mm-hmm. and where, you know, Look, when someone, the highest compliment I can, or praise I can give to a, a book is if, if I just loved a book, I say to a friend, you've got to read this. Mm-hmm. And they say, what's it about? And I'll just say, you've just got to read it. Like, I can't really describe it. I can tell yeah. you what the plot is, but it would miss the point. I can tell you the setting of the characters, the plot would just miss the point. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, is because it defies, it doesn't want to be constrained by a simple description. But part of it also is because maybe we don't know exactly what it is. And that quality of not knowing is really rich. Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.